there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey, Java Junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. By the way, if you're enjoying T4C, please let your friends know about it. And if you're still in school, make sure your career counseling offices know that there's a free resource out there to help Java Junkies find their professional path in life. I cannot wait for you to meet my next guest because he is the perfect example of how you can be so creative in the way that you take your major from college, which may seem to be setting you up on a linear path and basically twist it into a balloon animal. So grab your mug of coffee and take a chug because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. My guest today is Chris Lukey, who got his BS in mechanical engineering at Marquette University and has built his career to date working in sales and marketing at one of the world's largest companies dedicated to industrial automation. And that's not all. Chris and I actually met over the summer at a huge podcasting convention called Podcasting Movement. And he's also a podcaster and hosts the coolest show called Podcast Worldwide, in which he meets his guests over a beer. So you can start your day with Time for Coffee and end it with Chris. Chris, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am ready, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So I want to get right to your current job as business development manager at Rockwell Automation. Can you share with Java Junkies what it is you do? What are the primary functions of this job? Yeah, so my job is ultimately to grow the business for Rockwell Automation. And and like you said, we're a company that does automation equipment that's geared towards the manufacturing and industry. My job is to grow their business in a specific region of the United States, in which case for me, it's San Francisco. Now, while I have specific account package, and for those that might not be familiar with what's referred to when it's an account package, it's a base of customers that I'm responsible for, for not only finding you know new ways to grow the business for Rockwell at those places, but ultimately my job is to help my customers be successful, identify new revenue streams, find ways to stream streamline their processes to save cost on their manufacturing processes as well. And in addition to that, when we go more to the market development side, my role is also to go out and find new customers and identify areas that might make for, let's say, a good partnership between Rockwell and another manufacturer. Got it. You know, Chris, we should probably lay out a bit more about Rockwell and all of the different products that it is responsible for producing? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the easiest way to distill it is if anyone's familiar with a show called How It's Made, it's a TV show where they go inside a factory, whether that's uh, an automobile manufacturing plant or a, let's say a brewery, for example, we as a company Rockwell works with those organizations to essentially provide the brains or the nervous system behind that manufacturing process. And what that means is we provide control equipment, we provide sensors that check to see if a particular device is present, we provide visualization to everything that's going on in that facility. So while we ultimately provide the electronics and controls behind that process, really the easiest way to think about it is we're the company 
that's providing all the equipments that senses and feels and translates what's going on in that process to the people that are running that business. That sounds a little bit like it would involve a lot of coding. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. So there is definitely a, a programming element. And that, that brings up a great point. A lot of the people that use our equipment are engineers. But the reality is, since this type of equipment impacts business performance, how efficient a manufacturing facility is running, I could be working with anyone from a plant engineer to an executive that's ultimately in charge of a plant or a business unit within that company on a daily basis. So I get to interact with a lot of different individuals within side of a, a manufacturing organization. Take us inside a typical day and try to kind of make us feel like we're a fly on the wall, whether it's in your home office or out meeting with clients or at the office itself. Give us a sense of what it is we would be hearing and seeing you do. Yeah, so I'll kind of give two scenarios here because there's the client facing element of my job and then there's the behind the scenes, behind the computer element of my job. To be honest, the most exciting and probably the most visible part of any sales job is working with clients. And this is probably a good time to preface it with for anyone that's in school or going to be fresh out of school or is fresh out of school, sales growing up, especially for me, had kind of like a used car sale salesman connotation. It's like sales. Why would I want to want to be a skeezy salesperson? But the reality is sales is a critical function of any company. And what a salesperson's main role is, is to help out customers understand their business to see if the solutions that your company provides are a fit for the customer that you're working with. Because in this day and age where social media is so prevalent and everyone kind of has an idea of what most companies are already doing, a lot of people already know what my products do before I walk in the door. My job is to ultimately be a business consultant consultant to understand the business of, say, someone that's making automobiles to understand the type of challenges they have and then to translate how my products would fit into that. So, for example, a typical client meeting might go if I'm meeting with someone that makes machines that go into an automobile plant, for example, a stamping press. My role would be to understand how that stamping press works and how that stamping press is valuable to that equipment manufacturer's business. Are they trying to expand the type of applications they're working with? In that case, I might look for a way to help them accelerate getting a new machine to market faster. Because if I'm able to do that with solutions I provide, that company is ultimately more successful, that brings in profit early, and that ultimately helps them succeed in their overall business. Mm. So working with my customers to identify new solutions that bring value to their business is number one. Number two, a lot of the behind the scenes stuff in sales, there's a lot of strategy that goes behind it. I say I need to be familiar with what a business does before I walk in the door. So I sure as heck better be doing my research to understand, okay, what are some of the trends in the automobile industry? Are there new plants being manufactured? Are those plants being manufactured in the US? Are they being manufactured abroad? What might the priority 
priorities of my client be and try to understand the trends that are taking place to understand if they're in advance, if there might be a fit for the type of solutions that I sell before I go into a meeting. So there's a lot of back office work as well to make sure you're preparing yourself before going into any client meeting. How did you learn how to do this? So a number of ways. Fortunately, where where I went it with Rockwell Automation, and, and there are a number of large companies do this, there will be a type of sales training program right out of school. So I went through a seven-month program that was a combination of, I would say, like classroom learning to learn about products in the industries we served. And that alternated with a couple field assignments where I actually got out to the field to sell a specific product or specialize in a specific solution. So the reality is, even though it was called a sales training program, it's not like training in the aspect of just thinking of being PowerPointed to death. There was a lot of practical experience that went on with that to complement what we were learning in the classroom. And that kind of feeds into the other point is a lot of what you do in sales, you learn through trial and error. The only way you get comfortable being in front of a new customer that you don't know is picking up the phone, making those phone calls, cold contacting someone on LinkedIn and getting out there and practicing it over and over. In that process, I've shadowed a lot of people in my sales offices as well to learn best practices from what salespeople with 20 years experience, 30 years experiences are doing. So it's really a combination of learning in the classroom, learning from others, and then getting out there and doing it. Chris, I know for a fact, because you and I met in person and I've read some of what you've blogged about, that you consider yourself, and I would agree, to be an extrovert. Do you yes. think <laughs> do you think that in order to be a really good salesperson, you have to be an extrovert? Definitely not. And and that's a great point, Andrea, because that is kind of the perception a lot of people have about sales folks right out of the gate. They're like, oh, you know, someone might doubt themselves because they're like, you know, I'm more of an introvert. I don't necessarily want to be in front of people for eight hours a day. The reality is some of the best salespeople I meet are introverts because I think they bring a lot of additional skills to the table. Not that I would say extroverts are bad listeners, but I think introverts tend to absorb information and absorb things about their surrounding maybe more naturally than a lot of extroverts would. At the same time being extroverted, yeah, there's some charisma to it. And there's certainly each each comes with its strengths and weaknesses. But the reality is being an introvert is definitely definitely not a stopping point to say, no, sales isn't for me. Like I said, a lot of the best salespeople I know are introverts. Before I get into and start asking you about Pubcast Worldwide and your other show, Manufacturing Happy Hour, I want to get a little bit more into your day. What is it like? And you also have a rather interesting way of starting your day. Could you share that with Java Junkies? Yeah, so I'll go into what the full day looks like a little bit. But, you know, the way I start my day, and I would recommend this for anyone, regardless of what their career is, to have a morning routine that allows you to kind of focus on yourself and I guess to put a little Zen twist to it, you know, centering your energy before you get going. And I, I say that a little over exaggeratedly. Really, what I do, the first thing I do when I wake up is I make my bed because it's the first task I can kind of check off my list. Beds made. I feel good. And then I make sure I get a little bit of exercise, just usually some sit-ups and push-ups and things that get the blood flowing. Make sure I have a good breakfast with coffee. Then I do a little writing, journaling, or write a thank you note. 
first thing. And the reality is this routine takes about 45 minutes or so. It's nothing too extreme, but it allows me to center myself on some positive activities right out of the gate that allow me to get focused when I really start to go conquer the day as in in the function of my day job. So what do you mean by a thank you note? Who is it to? Ooh, so good question. It could be anyone. And this is actually something I've added recently. It could be just a quick email to someone internal to my company at Rockwell that helped me out with a contract or a sale. It could be a postcard that I write to a friend that I haven't seen in a while. You know, I I travel quite a bit, so I've tried to make it a habit of picking up a set of postcards wherever I go. So that way I have like simple thank you notes to send. It's just what I've found. It's a good way to start a day with gratitude. And there are multiple ways to do this. Someone could write three things they're thankful for in a journal. I guess to play to that extroverted element of mine, I like having my activities be something that engages someone else because being an extrovert, I get a lot of my energy from being around people or interacting with other people. So writing that thank you note or sending that letter is a great way for me to kind of reflect on something positive, but also involve someone else in that process. And what about the punk music? I don't know. It's always been an element about me. I went to the Warp Tour, which is uh, was a big traveling punk festival when I was in high school. And, you know, punk rock was just kind of one of those things that I first came across that showed me that, you know what, it's okay to be different. And as a result, after I get my coffee into my system and whatnot, one of the first things I do before I really get to work, whether that's in the car or whether it's on my uh, iPhone, I, I pump a little punk rock tracks just to give myself a little extra energy to get the day going. I noticed that you kind of left that out of your earlier answer, Chris. Why was that? <laughs> yeah, it's well, because it's it's one of those kind of non-traditional things that part of it is the separation of finishing my morning routine in my home office and then jumping into the car. I forgot to mention that in that piece because I start to separate that. But the reality is there's no day of mine that starts without a couple punk tunes to get the energy up. Nice. Nice. I actually am not (laughs) well-versed in punk music other than the movie. I don't know if you ever saw Sid and Nancy years ago about Sid Vicious. It's a great film. I love that. Yeah, no, that's uh, Sid Vicious is certainly an extreme example of what punk rock can be. But a lot of it for me, it's just high energy, fast paced music. And that's something that that helps get me going, whether it's in the morning or whether it's in the afternoon or whether it's on the mountain when I'm snowboarding in my free time. So just gets me up. Fun. So again, before I get to your podcast, take us into like the typical day. How often are you out of the office? You mentioned some of the times you're in your car, I guess, driving to a client or whatever. How often, like what percentage of your time are you indoors? What percentage of your time are you offsite visiting with clients? I would say kind of my rule of thumb, it's like three days a week in front of clients, two days doing the back office work. And that's not to say three days are specifically dedicated to client meetings and two days are specifically dedicated to being in in the office. Many times it'll work out that way. But if I look at it that way, 60% of my time is directly in front of a customer. 40% is taking care of the other research or content development or other things that I'm doing to make sure I'm engaging with my clients, even if I'm not in front of them at a given time. So 
Yeah. And it's changed over time. You've mentioned the podcast and I do some video work as well. So to be honest, I'm spending more time doing some marketing work now that's more behind the desk, but it's ultimately things that are showing up on social media that my clients are seeing. So it's become a a new way for me to engage with my clients by developing content like that. Yeah. So please share with Java Junkies how your podcast, Pubcast Worldwide, and your other show, Manufacturing Happy Hour, actually grew out of your day job ambitions and becoming the best business development manager that you can be. Yeah. So it's interesting because you said it right. There are two different shows and, and I'll start with Manufacturing Happy Hour because that's actually directly related to the context of my day job. Being in the manufacturing industry, I made mention to it a little earlier. People don't necessarily think of manufacturing as like the sexy, innovative industry that it is right off the bat, the same way that they might think of a startup for example, and also working in the Bay Area where I call on a lot of individuals that skew younger. You know, there are people that are working in the San Francisco area. There are a lot of people in their late 20s, early 30s that are making a lot of critical decisions for companies. Those are the clients that I work with. People in that generation absorb information differently than Gen X or baby boomers. They like absorbing things in short form videos. So as I was thinking about all of this, I'm like, what is a new way that I could reach my clients on a regular but still intimate basis that I'm not doing today? So I thought of doing a video series that would allow me to send information on products or information on issues that are impacting our industry to the clients that I serve. So for about nine months, I was doing a video series called Manufacturing Happy Hour, where I would just send a video of myself and another domain expert, a guest that I had on the show, talking about a product, talking about an issue impacting our industry. And I would just send that out over email. And eventually I started sharing that on social media and it started gaining a lot of traction. People were starting to learn about Rockwell Automation's brand through these short videos that I forgot to mention this important point. We're sitting there at a table in like a tech technology lab over a beer having this conversation. It was meant to kind of show this in an authentic, short, and easily digestible way to make it more casual, make it more approachable. We wanted to show that this can be a chill industry as well, too. So that way people were, it was easier to absorb the information we were sending out at that point. So Yeah, right. No, this was an excuse to drink. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's a fun side effect of it for sure. Some of the executives and some of the people in the industry that I've gotten to share a beer with while talking about some of the biggest issues in our industry has certainly been an added bonus. That is certainly a running joke of it. But for someone that's looking at a sales and marketing career, one advice I would always give is don't necessarily try to replicate what your competitors are doing. If you've got an innovative idea that's a bit outside the box and allows you to touch your clients in a different way than than you have before, run with it. Give it a shot. You never know if it'll work and if it'll turn into a video series that you're still running two years later. It's amazing. It really is, Chris. And and I'm teasing you. I think it's super (laughs) creative and also fun. Like, why not? Totally, totally. And it's and I think one other element I didn't mention of it was having been in the sales career for about eight years now, I felt like there was an element of my skill set that I wasn't totally using. Like I'd been in bands before I'd done college radio. I'd had these experiences that I'm like, is there a performance element I can add to my role or is there a way I can take some of these on stage on camera tendencies and use them as a strength in my day job? And ultimately, the answer was yes. 
And whether it's a video series or whether it's another talent that an individual may have that they're not tapping into, I would always encourage people to think, what are my strengths and am I using all of them to the best of my abilities in my career? That's such great advice. So what about PubCast? The other half of this is what I describe as more of a side hustle. So I do a beer-oriented tech video series. I also do a beer-oriented travel podcast. And ultimately, PubCast Worldwide, it's a show, as you've mentioned before, I describe it as the show where what and where we're drinking is just as important as what we're talking about. I tend to interview creatives, influencers, brewers, restaurateurs, and other interesting people over drinks at bars and breweries around the world. And this started as a passion project. I was doing a lot of things dedicated to the manufacturing industry, but I was thinking to myself, it's like, you know, if I could do anything in my life, when I look back on my life when I'm older and there was something I wanted to do, what would it be? I'm like, Anthony Bourdain, rest in peace, looked like he had a pretty cool job, got to travel around the world and eat and drink with interesting people. I'm like, what's stopping me from doing that? And I'm like, well, I guess the only thing stopping me is just getting the podcasting equipment and doing it. Ultimately, there was a very low barrier to entry. So I came up with the idea, started interviewing a a couple. Really, I started interviewing some friends and then expanded from there where I've gotten to interview TV personalities or James Beard award winning chefs. And it's just a fun passion project where similar to manufacturing happy hour, I enjoy connecting with people over a beverage, but I get to explore topics that are outside of what my day job is. And I think I'll translate this to some advice again. Again, regardless of what you're doing in your career, always try to find the other things that make you feel alive, that drive you, and and ultimately creating a podcast that fit into, I guess I should say, my travel schedule and my interests of connecting with people over a beverage. That was the answer for me. I love it. You are such an inspiration, Chris. You really are. So I want to flashback a few years to your time at Marquette when you were a mechanical engineering major. You got your Bachelor of Science. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you were studying? I've got a bit of an interesting story behind this. To answer that question, I thought I knew what I was going to do, but it's certainly not what I'm doing now. I actually got my mechanical engineering major and started off in mechanical engineering because I wanted to design roller coasters. Wow, really? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I, it was an interesting way to decide what major I was going into. I I mean, in addition to that, I excelled at math and science, so it seemed like a natural fit. All the pieces were kind of fitting together. But yeah, the biggest reason was I wanted to design roller coasters. And I don't get me wrong, I still love roller coasters to this day. But what I discovered about engineering as I was going through it was that it involves a lot of behind the desk problem solving, which is a great thing for a lot of people. The importance that engineers play to companies and to society as a whole is immeasurable. The reality is the biggest thing I learned from my engineering degree was how to solve problems. You know, when someone's going through engineering school, if you can break down a complex thermodynamic equation, you can translate that to looking at a situation at a customer and figuring out, okay, this customer is having this challenge. How do I break down that situation into smaller 
smaller parts to help them solve their issue. That's the biggest thing I took out of engineering. And while I ultimately decided that being an engineer in the traditional sense, whether that was designing roller coasters or designing something else wasn't necessarily for me, I picked up a lot of really practical skills that I think translate to any career that someone goes into. So Chris, what was your first job out of Marquette and how did you get it? So when I was at Marquette, my first job, I actually did have a more traditional engineering job. I was working at Anheuser-Busch, which I guess adds a little flavor to this story. The largest brewery in America at the time before they were owned by a foreign entity. But yeah, I worked at Anheuser-Busch as a project engineer, specifically on their aluminum can side of the company. I was essentially responsible for finding ways and executing on projects that allowed Anheuser-Busch to crank more cans through their manufacturing process. And why did you leave? Well, a couple things. Anheuser-Busch, that really felt like being on the front line of the company. Like we were out there trying to figure out, okay, we're, we're selling the product, but we just need to make more of it. And to an extent, Anheuser-Busch was being bought at the time when I was looking for my full-time job out of school. So there, there were some logistical elements at the time that, you know, I didn't know how the company would look or change over the next one or two years. But the reality was when I was looking at other opportunities, when I looked at Rockwell, Rockwell was really one of my first main jobs out of school. I liked the culture. I had never heard of sales engineering before. I had never even thought of sales as a career. But when it was finally approached to me as a career that's on the front line of the company and your job is to ultimately collaborate with your customers, you're not selling to them. You're collaborating with customers to understand their business and really be a partner for them and help them solve challenges. I just thought it was going to be really cool that I'd get to work with a bunch of different companies on a regular basis. And it just all the pieces seem to be playing together for me based on my experiences, what I was interested, like getting out in front of the field, being out in front of people. It just seemed like the perfect fit. Well, it certainly seems that way from an outsider's perspective, for sure. Chris, I try to ask all of my guests on Time for Coffee about a moment, a period during their career in which they maybe hit a roadblock of some kind, whether it was a difficult supervisor, a challenging boss, whether they were asked to leave that organization, whatever it was, maybe they were in over their head struggling. Have you had an experience like that? And if so, would you share with Java Junkies how you navigated through that time and kind of reached a better place? Yeah, absolutely. And to an extent, it's the period of time that was leading up to me creating Manufacturing Happy Hour and Pubcast Worldwide. It's not a very dramatic story, but the reality was for a couple of years before creating these media outlets of mine with the podcasts and the video series, I was kind of struggling with myself thinking it's like, you know, I'm pretty good at sales. I'm good at it. I'm not bad at it. But I'm like, I feel like something's missing. I don't think I'm utilizing my skill set and my experiences and some of the things that are uniquely me as well as I could. And at the same time, it had been about four years since I'd been playing in a band. I kind of put that part of my life behind me. So I was kind of itching to get back on stage a little bit and whatnot. So I'd say the biggest thing was it was, it was probably about two years of reflection where I'm kind of going through the motion of my job thinking it's like I'm doing well at work, but there's something missing. And 
I don't think someone's going to hand it to me. I think I'm going to have to create it myself. And it's about the same time you started seeing like influencers like Gary Vaynerchuk and a lot of other people doing videos on the internet. And I'm like, you know, my industry doesn't have videos. And I'm like, well, wait a second. What's stopping me from creating that? And then kind of back to where where one of the stories started earlier, that's when I popped up my iPhone on a selfie stick, propped it up on some books and filmed my first video and sent it out to some mentors. And I'm like, hey, guys, I've got this idea. What do you think? So I sent him like a three minute video that had me pitching my idea. And like all my mentors and peers were like, Chris, you've got to do this. This is a great idea. And the rest is history. So just to provide a little a little moral to that story is I think it's always good to be reflecting on where you're at in your career and the experiences you're getting out of work and also the experiences you're getting out of life as well and figuring out, am I doing all the things that make me fulfilled? that make me happy and ultimately allow me to be my best self. And that's that's where that kind of reflective period of my life led to a lot of the exciting things that I'm doing now. One of the things that I love most about that story, and thank you for sharing it, is the fact that you solved it yourself. Kudos to you. And in addition to that, though, I've got to give credit to having a good network of mentors and colleagues and and people that respect me in my personal life and my full time job. I think when people are looking for careers and I'm surprised I haven't mentioned this before, like look at the company culture. Are there people there that are going to be supporting you and lifting you up? And, And to Rockwell Automation's credit, I think they've done a great job at that by letting me take some of these creative ideas I've had and run with them. Chris, this is the final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? And I want to weave that in with a point I know you want to make about how students can take advantage of the opportunities that a college education offers them. Yeah, absolutely. I feel pretty fortunate because I look back at my college career and on the whole, I don't think there are too many things I do differently. I think the things I did well were I picked a major that had a lot of transferability that ultimately teaches you a problem solving process and provided me the opportunity to be valuable for a variety of jobs. But I also didn't get so absorbed into my degree that I forgot to do other things while I was there. I was doing the college radio. You mentioned like I was in a fraternity. I was throwing events for my friends and whatnot. And and also there was a stint at the end where I got to bartend also. So I, I did not short myself on life experiences. I would think my biggest piece of advice and, and maybe something that I did not do as well as I could have, say, freshman years, make sure you're balancing your curriculum and your major with life experiences and, and just taking time to enjoy it, too. Because I think one of the biggest regrets people have when they go through college is maybe they did not take advantage of some of the opportunities, whether it was study abroad, whether it was a particular activity. In general, when when people talk about regret, it's not the things they did, it's the things they didn't do. So that's kind of a long way of answering that question. Oh, it was an excellent answer. Chris, you are a really special guy and you surpassed my very high expectations for just how wonderful you would be as a guest on Time for Coffee. I want to thank you so much for squeezing us into your day and I wish you continued success in everything that you do. 
Hey, I appreciate the time again, Andrea. I love the format you've got. And I hope all the the students out there listening are absorbing all this advice, because like I said, learning does not stop when college ends. And it can be one of the most exciting parts of a career to continuously learn and absorb new skills as you're going along. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.